Shelly, Brenda, Leah, Mandy, PJ, Marie, Mariah, Christina, and Raven. Happy birthday. I hope you have a great month, and I hope you have lots of celebration time, and you just enjoy your special day. Happy birthday. When Rose Downwind disappeared in 2015, the investigators were given a confusing and contradicting timeline. But from the start, they didn't believe that Nishinabe, mother of five, simply walked away from the family she loved so much. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to Crimelines. Welcome back. This is my first episode that I am recording since I've gotten back from my trip to Dallas-Fort Worth. So I wanted to thank everyone that I met there. I wanted to send a special thank you to Marlon for coming out. I know it was difficult to get downtown with everything else you have going on in your life. And so I just wanted to let you know, Marlon, that it did mean a lot to me that you came out, even though you couldn't stay for very long. I also wanted to let everyone in the Seattle area know that I will be out there at a meetup on November 20th. That date is almost certainly the date. I will post the information on social media. It is kind of last minute, but if you are in the Seattle area on November 20th or some point that weekend, I will be in the area. Check my social media for more information. So about my trip to Texas, I just want to really quickly say that I met up with Josh Hallmark there. I was following him on part of his Israel Keys research, and I am going to be talking about that on Patreon this month. I put out bonus content on Patreon every month, and at the $3 tier, there will be a bonus episode that will be a primer on Israel Keys, basically an overview of his known victims. Then at the $5 tier, you will also get an episode about Keyes' time in Texas, audio of Josh and I on the research trip, and then I will have an interview with Josh about his process and what he thinks happened with Israel Keyes in Texas leading up to his arrest. So that is patreon.com slash crimelines, where you also get regular episodes like this one early and ad-free. And now we're like two and a half minutes in and finally getting to today's case. So today we are talking about Rose Downwind, who was born in November 1983 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Her father was Francis Downwind from the Red Lake Nation, which is also called the Red Lake Band of Chippewa, which is where Rose was enrolled. There are seven principal clans in the Red Lake Band, and Rose was Mokwa, meaning Bear Clan. Rose's mother was Darla Banks from the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe, and her father was Dennis Banks, the co-founder of the American Indian Movement. For those who are new to my MMIW episodes, I almost always include some history we were never taught in school, and today we're not going to dig too far into the past. We're actually going to talk about the American Indian Movement, also known as AIM. To understand the founding of AIM, we have to back up to something we've actually discussed before. 
In the episode on Caitlin Kelly and other Menominee missing persons cases, I talked about the movement in the 1940s through the 60s to terminate tribes and have them become cities within counties. Another aspect of this, which was truly called Indian termination in the event we are not clear on the goal, was to encourage or push indigenous people to leave their reservations and move into cities. We went into this aspect in the Alyssa McLemore episode, which was nearly two years ago, so I'm going to refresh everyone's memories. The Bureau of Indian Affairs had a federal program where they would fund the move for indigenous people to leave the reservation and settle in a city. The goal was assimilation by removing the people from their culture. As I pointed out in that episode two years ago, unfortunately, this plan was initially successful. It created a group known as Urban Indians who faced racial discrimination, but without the cultural support and resources of those who lived with or near their ancestral communities. Rates of homelessness, accidental deaths, poverty, infant mortality, and unemployment were and are higher for Indigenous people living in cities than for the general population. This is not a case of urban Indians not acclimating to city living. That contention is rife with racism in itself. What actually happened during the relocation program was that the Indigenous people were sold a bill of goods about the ideals of city living. They were told they would have more access to resources, jobs, medical care, and so on. That absolutely ended up not being true. Discrimination made it hard to find adequate housing and employment, and like I said, they faced this largely without social support. Many in the urban Indian communities realized that rather than assimilate to survive, they needed to come together to support each other, preserve their traditions and culture, and work towards ending discrimination. The American Indian Movement was founded in Minneapolis in 1968 for the same purpose, and it was a movement. This was not a community dinner club. They engaged in protests and occupations of land, and though they started with a focus on urban Indians, they soon expanded to include all indigenous issues, including those on reservations. Rose's grandfather, Dennis Banks, was at the occupation of Alcatraz, which lasted for 19 months from November 1969 until June 1971. This brought the attention to current issues on how the U.S. government was treating indigenous people. Celebrities like Marlon Brando became allies, and the entire story of the occupation of Alcatraz is actually pretty complicated. And I don't really have time to get into the whole 19-month history of it, but the international awareness of the continued backwards policies against Native Americans was the greatest success coming out of the occupation. And while this is something Dennis Banks did that I'm most familiar with, as in I once read it in a book, Dennis was involved in other armed actions, including a six-day takeover of the Bureau of Indian Affairs in Washington, D.C., and a 71-day occupation of the town of Wounded Knee, South Dakota, which is in the Pine Ridge Reservation. 
You may have heard of the Wounded Knee Massacre, which we will talk about in more detail in a December episode. But not all of the protests were armed actions. In 1978, the longest walk demonstration occurred where a sacred pipe was carried 3,200 miles to Washington, D.C. It started in February and ended in July. A few hundred people started the walk out in California, and it turned into thousands at the end. There were multiple pieces of legislation they wanted attention to, one being a bill that was going to repeal treaties with the federally recognized tribes. This bill didn't go forward. They also wanted attention to the American Indian Religious Freedom Act, which was passed a few weeks after the end of the walk. Yes, it was in 1978 when a law was passed giving Native Americans their First Amendment right to the free exercise of religion. I remember way, way back in my middle school days, my social studies book talked about the debate over peyote, which is a cactus that has a drug in it that has psychoactive effects. It is used ceremonially by the Native American church. That was part of the debate here, but that wasn't the only thing barred prior to 1978. It was much more broad than just peyote. And I find it disingenuous to have centered the discussion around drug use. There have been other longest walks organized since then to bring attention to issues in Native American communities. Though Dennis Banks, in his New York Times obituary, was referred to as militant, he spent the last 30 years of his life as an advocate, a substance abuse counselor, and the owner of a maple syrup business. Rose's mother, Darla, was, I believe, the third of Dennis's 20 children, and Rose was one of his 100 grandchildren. Rose grew up in a traditional Ojibwe family, which included being raised by extended family in addition to her parents. I know the first time this type of arrangement came up in an episode, my researcher at the time, Annie, wanted to be clear that this isn't a case of parents just leaving kids with extended family and disappearing. It is just a more communal approach to raising children, and while I don't know the ins and outs of Rose's childhood, I do want to make sure that I'm putting this in the proper cultural context. Rose grew up and had five children of her own, with the youngest three being with her partner, Marcello Simarusti. Rose settled in Bemidji, Minnesota. Bemidji is in northern Minnesota, and it is a central city for local reservations, including Red Lake and Leech Lake. It is where you will find services like Indian Health Services. When Rose and Marcello started dating, she was in her early to mid-20s. He was in his early to mid-30s. But the age difference wasn't something the family was necessarily concerned about so much as Marcello's abusive behavior. Rose and Marcello split up after an incident on October 7th, 2015, where Marcello was charged with a domestic assault against Rose. With that charge came a no-contact order. 
But as we know from far too many instances, leaving an abusive relationship is a dangerous time for the victim. It was during this separation when, in October 2015, Rose's mother Darla called the police. Because she knew that leaving an abusive relationship was a dangerous time, she had Rose call her every day to check in. Darla hadn't heard from Rose in a couple of days. The last communication she had gotten was a text on October 21st, indicating that Rose was heading to St. Paul, Minnesota, which was a few hours from her home. Since Rose usually checked in daily, a vague text followed by silence was alarming to Darla. Not only was she not in contact with Darla, she seemed like she wasn't in contact with anyone, including her five children, ages one through nine, and that was completely out of Rose's character. She was an active, loving, and attentive mother. Darla said that when she contacted the police, she was first met with indifference. She was told to call back if she didn't hear from Rose in another couple of days. So Darla flew to Bemidji and started looking for Rose herself, including going to a women's shelter, thinking maybe Rose had sought help there. Rose's missing persons report was officially taken on October 24th. And when it was, a member of the Bemidji police remembered he had actually responded to a 911 call a few days before related to Rose. It was 11 a.m. on October 21st when Rose's ex, 40-year-old Marcello Samarusti, called to say Rose was parked outside of his house. They had a no-contact order, so he was calling to report that Rose was violating it. When the officer arrived at the house, Rose wasn't there. Marcello said that Rose had driven off before the police arrived. But she had never come up to the house. She never talked to Marcello. So she hadn't technically contacted him. She hadn't violated the order. Since she hadn't made contact and she stayed in the street the whole time she was there, there was nothing for the officer to do, and he left. Since that was the last time the police knew someone saw Rose, the officer went back to talk to Marcello, who said Rose had actually stayed at the house from October 20th to the 21st. He stayed overnight, but he hadn't seen her since she left on the 21st. He said she had gotten into a blue car, but he didn't know the make or the model. He did admit it was unusual for her to not be in contact, particularly with her children, for several days like this. Marcello did allow an investigator to look around. The only odd thing he saw was in the basement. There was some dried paint that had spilled out on the floor, and there were a few footprints in it. Marcello said that was just something the kids had done by accident, knocking over the paint. Otherwise, the house looked normal. Marcello's story of Rose leaving the house on the 21st did line up with the text Rose's mother had gotten on the 21st saying she was leaving to head to St. Paul. But it didn't line up with the first story Marcello told about Rose being parked outside the house on the morning of October 21st. Now he's saying Rose was actually in the house, sleeping the night before, 
and left on the 21st. So why did Marcello call 911 to say Rose was parked outside the house when she hadn't been? It didn't make any sense. So we have a changing story. We have a history of domestic violence. And other than Marcello's story, the investigators couldn't find anyone who had seen Rose since October 19th when she left a Target store in Bemidji. Marcello did drop an important lead, though. He mentioned that his friend, 27-year-old Christopher Davis, was at the house the same night Rose was supposedly last there. So on October 26th, the investigator spoke with Christopher. Christopher said he actually did not see Rose at the house while he was there, which was a pretty big contradiction in Marcello's story. This is a 1,400-square-foot home. Christopher was there for several hours while Rose was there all night, yet they did not cross paths at all. The police did get a search warrant for Christopher's phone. It showed that on October 20th, before 11.30 p.m., Christopher made several calls to a phone registered to the girlfriend of Brandon Rossbach. Brandon was a friend of not just Christopher and Marcello, but also of Rose and her family as well. After these calls, right around 11.30 p.m., Christopher then used his phone to do a search for the resort that was north of Bemidji where Brandon lived with his girlfriend. The police then spoke with Brandon on November 4th. He said he didn't know anything about Rose's disappearance, but that it was normal for Rose to leave when she and Marcello were arguing. It was around this same time that it was announced in the media that Dwayne Chapman, better known as Dog the Bounty Hunter, was offering a $10,000 reward for information in this case. I never expected to say the words Dog the Bounty Hunter on this podcast. However, here we are. Chapman, who has said he is Cherikawa Apache on his mother's side, was a friend of Rose's grandfather, Dennis Banks, and Dennis reached out to him for help. This money for the reward came straight out of Chapman's own pocket. He later said that when he got to Bemidji, he heard from sources that Marcello was the prime suspect in Rose's disappearance, but it was believed Marcello had help covering it up. Chapman thought the reward might motivate one of the accomplices to come forward. And the tips Chapman was getting were in line with how the investigation was progressing. On November 5th, 2015, the police came straight out and said publicly that they did suspect foul play. They went so far as to name Marcello and his friend Christopher as persons of interest in the case. They did not name Brandon at this point, but we do know they were looking at him because the same day Marcello and Christopher were named, the police went and talked to Brandon yet again, and this time they had a search warrant for his cell phone. But when they got to Brandon's home, Brandon told them that he just so happened to have lost his cell phone just the day before while he was out hunting. What a coincidence. And as for his alibi for the night of October 20th, 
Brandon said he was sleeping. He had also been hunting that day, and he was very tired. He estimated he went to bed around 9 p.m., so if Christopher Davis had called him, he had slept through it. The investigators pushed back on this, and Brandon then conceded, well, maybe he did answer the phone that night, but he knew he definitely did not see Christopher, and he didn't know anything about Rose's disappearance. And while the police were working on their investigation, we have Dog the Bounty Hunter running an investigation of his own. He was hoping to learn where Rose's remains were because this was a presumed homicide, but he also wanted to keep an eye on Marcello to make sure he didn't try and leave town. And he doubly wanted to make sure that Marcello didn't take his and Rose's three kids with him. Marcello's family told Chapman that Marcello had already left for Mexico, but Chapman knew from contacts in the town that it wasn't true. Marcello didn't realize it at the time, but there were people he was communicating with who were passing on his information and location to Chapman. Chapman said he even called Marcello a few times to taunt him, just saying things like, we're going to get you. When Marcello changed his cell phone number, someone gave the new number to Chapman, who then called him again. He really wanted to put some pressure on Marcello. But it's easier to get an accomplice or an accessory after the fact to talk since they're not facing the same level of consequences. So the investigators were starting to put the pressure on the people they thought knew something. We're talking Christopher Davis and Brandon Rossbach. The investigators didn't believe Brandon when he said he didn't see Christopher that night. Why would Christopher look up the location of where Brandon lived if he didn't plan to go up there? But when the authorities spoke to Brandon again on November 9th, he still denied seeing Christopher that night. Maybe Christopher went up to Brandon's cabin, but he said he was dead asleep and he wouldn't have heard Christopher knock. Brandon said he did discuss Rose's disappearance with Christopher, and Christopher insisted he had nothing to do with it. But Christopher did tell Brandon that Marcello said he did something really bad. So maybe Marcello was involved, but by himself. On November 13th, investigators were back on Brandon's doorstep after they heard from a witness that not only did Christopher show up at the cabin that night, but Brandon left with him. It was late at night, and he didn't come home until around 4 in the morning. Brandon said this was not true, but this witness was his girlfriend's cousin who was spending the night. We're not talking a neighbor who saw car headlights drive by. We're talking someone inside the home. So the resort where Brandon lived and the area around it became a focus of searches for Rose in mid-November. And for all of Brandon's claims of innocence, he really didn't act that way when he saw searchers around town. One volunteer saw Brandon drive by. When Brandon stopped at a stop sign, he rolled down the window, waved, smiled, and said, you're looking in the wrong area. She's not here. At another point, Rose's mother, Darla, was at a gas station with some other searchers, and Brandon was in a passing car. He looked right at them, 
right at this group and drove by with a huge smile on his face. Now, the thing with this is, like I said, Brandon knew Rose and he knew her family. According to him, he was actually very close to them. But instead of joining the search for Rose, his dear friend, he was driving by and smiling creepily at people. On November 23rd, Brandon did try to reach out to Darla on social media, saying that he loved her and he never would have done anything that would have hurt her or her family. He said he was afraid the police were trying to drive a wedge between him and Darla, who he had known for his whole life. But it really wasn't the investigators doing this. It was the evidence against Brandon and his own behavior that was driving a wedge between them. Though the investigation was focused on Marcello, Christopher, and Brandon, and it was being actively worked on, there was massive media attention and large-scale searches, the three men remained free throughout November. That is, until in December, when Marcello slipped up. Marcello still had those charges pending for the domestic abuse that led to the no-contact order. He was due in court on those charges, but didn't show up. This allowed the court to issue a warrant for his arrest. When Marcello heard about this, he did turn himself in on December 7th, 2015. The investigators now had him in custody, and Marcello agreed to talk. He was finally ready to tell them what happened to Rose. Apparently, he was feeling the pressure, whether it was from the investigation, the community, the family, Dog the Bounty Hunter, wherever it was coming from, he was ready to more or less come clean. So let's get into this confession. Marcello said that on October 20th, Rose was at home with the kids while he was at work. She called him and said one of the kids had broken their arm. So on his lunch break, Marcello went over to the house and found that everything was fine. He said Rose had used this fake injury as a ruse to get him to come over. Realizing this, Marcello said he was headed out the door to go back to work, but he couldn't find his keys. While looking for them, he realized that money he had left to pay for utilities was gone. This sparked a fight between Rose and Marcello over the money. At one point during this argument, Rose took out her cell phone, prepared to record the interaction for the police. Not only that, Rose said she had call logs from her phone to prove that he had violated the no-contact order multiple times. Of course, Marcello was saying that it was Rose who called him that day, so she would have been the one who violated the order, according to what Marcello is saying at this point. So if Marcello was telling the truth, Rose would be in trouble too, so why would she turn this into the police? But I think if Marcello is telling the truth is a huge if. It's possible he lied about why he went over there that day. We do know he lied in at least one other part of his confession, but we'll get to that in a minute. Let's continue. Marcello said he reached for Rose's phone to stop her from recording him, 
And in the short tussle over the phone, Rose fell back and down the basement stairs. But it was a complete accident. He didn't push her. This was just something that happened as he was grabbing for the phone and she was trying to keep it away from him. Marcello said Rose must have hit her head on the way down because when he got to her at the bottom of the stairs, there was some blood around and she also did not have a pulse. The average person would try resuscitation or they would call 911 to report this accident, but Marcello said he panicked and instead he did nothing. He took the kids out of the house, leaving Rose's body at the bottom of the basement stairs. He took them shopping, and then he came home and contacted his friend Christopher Davis to figure out what to do. Marcello said Christopher and his friend Marciano came up from St. Paul, which is a three-hour drive. They showed up around 11.30, at which point Marcello had already put the kids to bed. Christopher then left for two hours, and when he came back around 1 a.m., 31-year-old Brandon Rossbach was with him. Marcello said he was drinking and Brandon told him to stop it. Brandon then said, do you want your kids to have no parents or one parent? Implying that they needed to do whatever they had to to keep Marcello out of jail for the sake of his children. Marcello said he was surprised that Brandon took this position because he was actually more of a friend to Rose's family. He thought Brandon would have gone to the banks and downwind family to tell them what happened or go to the police, but he didn't. Instead, he, Christopher, and Marcello loaded Rose's body into the back of Marcello's GMC Yukon, which is a full-sized SUV. In the back with the body, they also put shopping bags, styrofoam bowls, plates, and cups a gas can full of gasoline, and a shovel. Then Marcello, Christopher, and Brandon drove several miles northwest of Bemidji to a remote trail. Christopher's friend Marciano stayed at the house to watch Rose's children, who were sleeping through all of this. Yes, Marcello left a babysitter for his children while he went to dispose of their mother's remains. As far as I can tell... The children were oblivious to everything that happened that day in their home. That is a small mercy in all of this. Marcello said that when they got to this spot that was remote enough, a place that Christopher and Brandon seemed to already know about, they took Rose's body out of the SUV. They took turns digging a hole for about 30 minutes. Then they put Rose's body, wrapped in a blanket, into this hole. They put the plastic bags and styrofoam products all around, doused the entire thing in gasoline, and then lit it on fire. Marcello said he stayed near the truck, he paced a bit, while Christopher was the one who kept the fire going. Brandon kept assuring Marcello that they were doing it for the kids. After an hour or two, they put the fire out by putting dirt on top of it, then covered the gravesite with branches and general debris from around the area and left. This story Marcello told did help make sense of something else found on the searches of digital devices. Christopher Davis had done an internet search for how hot does a fire 
have to be to burn through bone. Marcello went on in his confession to say that they drove Brandon to his cabin, dropping him off around 4 a.m. On the way there, they came up with their cover-up plan, which even included Brandon giving Marcello some Valium so that he would stay calm whenever the police came around asking about Rose. They knew her family was going to report her missing sooner rather than later, and Marcello had to be ready. Brandon was dropped off, and Marcello and Christopher went back to Marcello's home. Marcello then called 911 several hours later to report that Rose was parked outside of his house to give the illusion she was still alive. Christopher then texted Rose's mom, pretending to be Rose, to say she was headed to St. Paul. Not only did they hope to delay the family in looking for Rose, they hoped to send them to St. Paul to look, which was hours away from where Rose was actually buried. Now, about Marcello's confession, he absolutely framed everything in a way that made him seem to be the least culpable person there. Rose lured him to the house to break the no-contact order. She was recording him. The fall was an accident. It was Brandon's idea to cover it up. It was Christopher who dug the hole and started the fire. On and on and on, Marcello was just a person moving through this set of circumstances. In spite of this dancing around, Marcello did give very important information, and that was the location of Rose's remains. He was then charged with second-degree murder without intent. On December 9th, 2015, Rose's charred body was found in a four-foot-deep pit, just like Marcello described. Testing of the remains showed that chemicals that make up styrofoam were present, as was an accelerant like gasoline. But there was one part of Marcello's confession that wasn't backed up by the evidence. On autopsy, there was evidence Rose may have fallen. She did have a spinal fracture and a head wound. That said, a wire was found around her neck. The cause of death was ligature strangulation. Marcello's story of not being a terribly active participant in Rose's death fell apart. Even if we concede that Rose fell down the stairs accidentally during their argument, Marcello did not simply just not call for help like he claimed. The evidence indicates that he actually grabbed a wire and finished killing Rose Downwind, a bright, loving 31-year-old who just wanted to raise her children in a home without violence. After the results from the autopsy, 40-year-old Marcello Simarusti's charge was changed from second-degree murder without intent to second-degree murder intentional homicide. 31-year-old Brandon Rossbach was also arrested for aiding an offender. Two months later, 27-year-old Christopher Davis was arrested and also charged with aiding an offender. Marciano, who admitted to babysitting that night, was not charged. He said he didn't see Rose's body or go to the basement at all, and there was no evidence to contradict his story. 
But there was evidence Christopher and Brandon did help cover this up. And the evidence was not just Marcello's confession. There was security footage of Christopher and Brandon at a Walmart at nearly 1240 in the morning buying a bunch of styrofoam plates and cups and bowls, just like what was used in the fire. We're talking six packages of cups, two of plates, and two of bowls. There was also a Facebook message from Christopher to Marcello from four days after the murder. And Christopher was explaining how he fell asleep with a candle lit, and when he woke up, his bedside table was on fire. He then made a comment about it being karma, and Marcello said, and quick, too. The investigators also had all of the phone records. Christopher's calls to Brandon on the 20th did go to Brandon's girlfriend's phone, but Brandon turned around that same night and sent Marcello a Facebook message giving him that number to call him on. So he's giving his girlfriend's number to someone and saying, call me on this line. So it's very clear that at the time of the murder, Brandon was using this phone registered to his girlfriend. And this evidence blew away Brandon's alibi of, I'm sleeping. While he was supposedly in such a deep sleep after a long day of hunting, he was messaging Marcello on Facebook and he was buying styrofoam products at Walmart. In April 2016, Marcello ended up pleading guilty to second-degree murder in a plea deal. He wouldn't be sentenced until after the cases against Brandon and Christopher were resolved because part of his deal was that he would get consideration in sentencing after he testified against Brandon and Christopher. When Marcello was finally sentenced the following year, he did have to testify as to what happened. He said in court that it was Rose who started hitting him first. She was using these stringed lights to whip at him, and as she was doing that, he saw that she actually had his work keys in her hand, which was preventing him from leaving. He claimed he snapped at this point and put his hands around her neck, pushing her against the basement door. Marcello claimed to not remember exactly what happened next, except that he was at the top of the stairs at one point while Rose was at the bottom. After he took the kids to the store, he said he called Christopher. And then he went back down to where Rose was and put the stringed lights around her neck because he thought maybe he could stage it as a suicide. He said that's why there was wire around her neck, not because he strangled her with the wires. You can decide if you believe him or not. Now, the moving and the burning of the body was Christopher and Brandon's idea in this version of the story as well. Marcello said he thought they would actually show up and talk him into going to the police, not that they would talk him into covering it up. But as we know, Marcello and the truth are not the best of friends, so take his statement with a boulder of salt. Marcello then asked for forgiveness, and two people in the courtroom yelled that he would never be forgiven. Marcello was then sentenced to 35 years. Because of his criminal history and aggravating factors, he was facing several years more than this. 
had he not made the plea deal. He was given consideration for agreeing to testify against Christopher and Brandon if they went to trial and for leading the police to Rose's remains. They were unlikely to have found them without his help. Now, Christopher Davis opted not to go to trial. He pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 10 years and three months for aiding an offender. Brandon pleaded not guilty and went to trial in October 2016. He was found guilty and received 16 years and nine months in prison. The jury found that the victim's family suffered emotional distress for the seven weeks Rose was missing, so the court went higher with the sentencing than they may have otherwise. Brandon actually managed to successfully appeal this sentence, though, because the jury had only found that he aided Marcello, but they hadn't specified what he aided. They hadn't established the predicate offense. Was it second-degree murder, third-degree murder, which they do have in Minnesota, or was it manslaughter? His sentence would be significantly less if he was aiding manslaughter versus aiding second-degree murder. So the jury should have determined that first, regardless of what Marcello pleaded guilty to. The appellate court agreed, and Brandon got a new trial for the purposes of establishing the category of homicide this was. The defense's goal at the second trial in March 2019 was to prove that the murder was not intentional and therefore it was manslaughter. The state wanted Marcello to testify, which was part of his initial plea deal. He had to cooperate with the proceedings against the others. They transported Marcello from prison to the courtroom where he then refused to testify. The judge did tack on six months to his sentence for contempt of court, but when Marcello was at the beginning of a 35-year-long sentence, what six more months? At the end of the second trial, the jury upheld that this was second-degree murder and Brandon was given the same sentence. The man who murdered Rose Downwind and the two men who helped him cover it up are all still in prison. In Minnesota, there is no parole board and no credit for good behavior. People convicted of felonies serve two-thirds of their sentence behind bars and the last third unsupervised release. They actually make it pretty easy to calculate when someone will be released. According to the Minnesota Department of Corrections, Christopher Davis is expected to be released in November 2022, which is about a year from the time of this recording. Brandon Rossbach is expected to be released in March 2027, and Marcello Semarusti will be released from incarceration in April 2039 when he is 63 years old and all of his children with Rose are adults. They are currently being raised by Rose's sister and her husband. Another of Rose's sisters, Carrie Ann, told Lakeland Public Television that she knows it is hard to leave a relationship, but she hopes Rose's legacy is that someone hears her story and sees the light and gets out of an abusive relationship before they, too, are the victim of a homicide. And if you are that person hearing Rose's story and seeing the light, I have left some resources in the show notes that will help you stay safe while seeking help. 
Thank you for listening. You can find Crime Lines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crime Lines is also on YouTube, where I post two to three true crime videos a week, including an occasional after show where we go over any visuals from that week's podcast episode. Crime Lines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crime Lines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for. 